we're in 1 Thessalonians, which we began last week, new sermon series, and um, the sermon series is entitled Hopeful Living, and, uh, and we're in uh, 1 Thessalonians. This morning, um, I'm going to uh, call an audible, I'm going to uh, spend about 10 minutes uh, going through a few verses here, and then I'm going to welcome up a friend of mine, and I'm going to tell you all about that in a minute. But uh, 1 Thessalonians is where we're at, and last week, if you were with us, you know we began this new series, Hopeful Living, looking at the grace and peace of God. Um, Paul begins the, the letter, uh, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, that wonderful gift of God, uh, the, the gift of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that even though we deserve judgment and wrath, and we do, because the Bible says we're all sinners by nature and by choice, and that our sin has separated us from God because God is a holy God, He is a pure God, and because He is a good and holy God, He has to judge sin, and we are sinners. And so that's our plight, but the good news of the gospel is that the grace of God has been lavished out, poured out upon us, because the Bible says God desires none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And the way he accomplished that is to send Jesus Christ to the earth who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And he came and lived that life of perfection that we can't. And he took our sins upon him when he went to the cross of Calvary. And he suffered, he died, he was buried, but he rose again from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, and death. And now he offers to us eternal life in his grace. And all that we need to do in the equation is to repent, to recognize and confess that we're sinners by nature and by choice, and to cry out to God for his forgiveness. And so this is who God is. The result of this equation, when we cry out to Jesus and when we receive his cleansing, it's grace, we get the grace from God and we get peace with God. But listen, it's more than that. Because when you truly understand the grace of God, then what happens is that you will experience the peace of God. I like what Pastor Chuck Smith said. He said, for years I had peace with God, but I did not have the peace of God because I did not know the grace of God. I related to God in a legal way. My righteousness was predicated upon my good efforts, my devotional time, my prayer life, and my study of the word. I had a legal relationship with God. How many, let's be honest, how many of you can relate with that? That legal relationship with God, that religious life, that do good, try harder, and if I'm a good boy, God loves me, and if I'm a bad boy, God's angry with me. And here's what Chuck went on to say. He said, then I came to an understanding of the grace of God. And I came into a loving relationship with God. And when I did, I suddenly experienced the peace of God, something I'd never known in my Christian life. This is grace, the grace of God. And the result is peace, the peace of God. Well, today Paul transitions in his letter from the greeting of grace and peace to his giving of thanks and remembrance. Verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So the first thing here we see is that Paul was thankful for the Thessalonians, thankful for the Thessalonian church. And I want you to remember, as you consider that, the miraculous thing that happened when the church of Thessalonica was formed. We looked at this last week. First of all, Paul planted this church after he and Silas had suffered immense persecution. Um, as we saw, they received that vision, a man from Macedonia calling them to come over to Greece, and they all perceived that it was the Holy Spirit doing this work, and so they promptly went over there, and as they went over and set foot on and began to minister, you would think that God would blow the doors wide open. Clearly, he's called us here, but no, God allows them to face persecution, 
And they faced such intense persecution that uh, when they were in Philippi, they were severely beaten and thrown into prison. Not just, the, just any old jail. They were thrown into the inner prison. And they had their hands and their feet, their legs fastened into stocks. And this is actually a form of torture. And so not only were they severely beaten, but then they were tortured. And there, uh, Paul and Silas, you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. Um, but as they were in that place, uh, they, they were worshiping the Lord, trusting in the Lord, a miraculous thing takes place, this great earthquake sets them free and all, and you can read about that in Acts 16, we don't have time to get into it, but when Paul and Silas were then run out of, of Philippi shortly thereafter, they're set free, but then the, 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 all the rulers of the city find out that he's a Roman citizen, they just beat him without a trial, they, this bad thing, they could get in big trouble for that, they're like, hey, you know, leave here, you know, kind of thing, so they're run out of town, and then this is when they go to, to Thessalonica, and when they go to Thessalonica, man, they, I mean, it, it, it's not that far of a journey. These guys would have been black and blue. They would have just looked like they just went 10 rounds with Mike Tyson. And so they, they show up, you know, looking horrible. And um, <clears throat> so uh, this is why, by the way, if you just look real quickly at verses 5 and 6, that Paul says to them, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And he says, as you know what kind of men we were among, uh, among you for your sake. What kind of men were they? They were faithful. They were loving. They were, hey, we just got the snot beat out of us, but because we have a love for God's people, we're still going to go and we're going to serve. So they show up, none the worse for wear, just being completely bruised and battered, and, and they say, we're here to care for you. And, and I mean, a reasonable person might go, well, God, we need to care for you. Like, you need a doctor, you know? And then he says in verse 6, and you became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word, here it is, in much affliction. Uh, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, not only did Paul and Silas have this beating and this affliction, but as you read through the account in the book of Acts, you find out that they also afflicted the church of the, the, the Thessalonians. And so they, they themselves were persecuted. And so uh, Paul gives thanks for, for them. Wow, we're just so grateful for the work you're doing there, for, for how they've responded to the gospel. But it's more than that because if you remember, Paul and Silas only had three weeks there in, in Thessalonica. They didn't realize that they were going to have a, such a short time to make their work count, but they did. And in three short weeks, man, the church takes off. And so Paul is expressing his thanks to God. He's acknowledging God's miraculous work to establish the church, and he's praying for their continued growth. Now, just a quick application for us, and we'll dwell on this next week at our Thanksgiving service, but boy, God, I'm so grateful for what you're doing in this church, and I'm so grateful for, you know, this, these people in Thessalonica and all the hardship that you've taken them through and what you allow us to be involved in and all of these things. But, but it's a good point for us to stop and go, what am I thankful for? What are you thankful for? You know, how has God worked miraculously in your life and in my life? Paul told the Ephesians, God's able to do exceedingly and abundantly all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Ask yourself, how has God worked in you? Well, how has he manifested his power in your life? Paul told the Philippians, he wrote to them, remember Philippian, you know, the beating and all of that. He said to them, because they're suffering persecution, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. So he says, don't be anxious, but hey, pray about it. Prayer, supplication, and he adds that word, thanksgiving. Now, what's required for you to practice thanksgiving? At its basic element, what do you have to do if you're going to express thankfulness and, and gratitude for something? Here it is. You have to remember. You have to remember. Sometimes, you know, we go through life and, and we forget everything that God's done before. And so, so it is so healthy just to remember how God has graciously taken care of you or provided for you or brought you through different struggles, brought you through different trials. And that's what Paul goes on to say in the next verse. In verse 3, what's he say? He says, we remember 
what? Without ceasing, your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Paul acknowledges three qualities that characterize this young church. Number one, their work of faith. Secondly, their labor of love. And thirdly, their patience of hope in Jesus in the sight of God. With that, I want to invite up my friend, uh, Pastor Scott Sharpen. Uh, welcome him to the stage, if you would. When I think about a ministry that embodies all three of these qualities, and that's what, that what Paul is doing here. He's, he's remembering a church that embodies the quality of a work of faith, a labor of love, and patience of hope in Jesus in the sight of God the Father. Um, Pastor Scott here, if you were with us back in 2013, I had him out then. He's the pastor of Rock Valley Christian Church in Murrieta. And uh, Scott gave us a sermon on that day um, and touched on the, the, the issue uh, of abortion and pro-life. Um, he is a strong defender of life, and um, he and his wife Carolyn uh, invested of their, of their personal finances to start a ministry, a ministry called Go Mobile for Life. And what they discovered was that that ministry, they, it's, a, it's a mobile ultrasound clinic. And, uh, and we, we've got a little, little bit of time here. So just the, the, the vision of that ministry real quick, Pastor Scott. Yeah, the Lord had inspired me to give a sermon on abortion, and I resisted initially, but giving that sermon back in 2013 really changed my life. I'd always been pro-life, but God saw fit to move me into the center of the fight, into the arena, and so we went on that journey in 2013, uh, purchased the um, unit that you see out there, and the whole purpose was to go uh, and show women life in the womb and also uh, share the Lord Jesus with them, because abortion really isn't the, the problem. It's a symptom of a fundamental reality that people don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. See, and that's what I love about your ministry, because um, you, you take this on as a calling from God and as a, as a fight for the kingdom of God, but, mm. but it, you do it with such love and compassion, because, you know, the old uh, saying that, you know, abortion, you have one dead and, and one wounded, but, but actually the mm -hmm. wounds are much deeper than that, right? Indeed. The, 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 the women who have made this choice and who are racked with guilt and shame and, and just burden and grief and remorse, uh, those that have partnered with them in the decision, um, and you minister to them as well. It, it's, not, it's not simply just a, just a, a, a one particular pronged attack. You're, you're, you're offering all of these services. And the reason, yes. by the way, that they went with uh, a mobile ultrasound unit, what, what's the number? Is it nine, in, 9 out of 10 or is it 8 out of 10? Yeah, or? 8 out of 10 uh, women who see a life on ultrasound uh, choose life. So women that are making the decision whether or not to abort their, their babies, they, once they see that baby in their womb, they make the decision to, to keep that baby. And really that's what motivated you to, to start that ministry. Well, yeah. a little over a year ago, there, there was another ministry, is another ministry uh, here in our valley. It's, it's called Birth Choice Centers. And they're more, where yours was a mobile ministry, theirs is kind of more of a brick and mortar kind of uh, ministry. And again, yeah. doing all of those th same things, but, but even more so, right? Yeah, and, bringing those features together allows us to serve more women, serve them even more effectively. And so we're excited about the, the and so, merger and where it's gone. So the mobile unit goes out into strategically located, you know, sometimes parking, you know, right across the street from, from an abortion center where people mm -hmm. see the big sign, free pregnancy screening. And, uh, and yeah. so you're, you're giving them the pregnancy screening, you're giving them the counsel, you're giving counsel to those that are suffering over the guilt and shame of having made those decisions, all of those things. Yes. And so um, Scott now serves as a, a member of the board of Birth Choice. This is a critical ministry. Let me just say before I turn it over to you, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you uh, the time and, um, and let you <coughs> carry on with this important message. Um, I just want to tell you that we as a church support this ministry. Brenda and I personally uh, support this ministry, and you're going to see why here as Pastor Scott shares. So take it away, All right. brother. Thank you, Pastor Thank you. Ted. <clears throat> I want to just start with some opening comments here because this is a very difficult subject. This has impacted so many lives in our country. 
I didn't believe this statistic when I first heard it, but approximately three out of 10 women in the United States of America will have an abortion sometime in their, in their life. And what that also means is that three out of 10 men are going to be party to that abortion, whether directly or indirectly. And so we're talking about a significant, massive amount of people whose lives have been impacted with abortion. That's not even to mention the ripple effects of friends and family and so forth. And so anytime this subject comes up, it is a difficult and heavy one, but it's nonetheless one that, as we'll get into, that God's heart is very clear on how he views the unborn and therefore how we ought to be imitators of Christ and view the unborn in the same way uh, that our Father in heaven does. But this is a difficult subject, and knowing that some of you here have been involved in some way in abortion, I know it can be kind of a trigger. And so just to acknowledge up front that the beautiful part of the gospel is that we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We have washing in Jesus Christ. We have a complete redemption in Jesus Christ. And what Romans 8.1 tells us is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So healing is available. I've met so many women who have uh, been healed. I've met women who are in the process of healing, and I've met other women who are still going through and, and needing to be healed. And so if that's you, we have people you can talk to and so forth. So thank you uh, again for, uh, for having us here today. But I want to touch, first of all, on just the humanity of the unborn, because as the saying goes, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, we don't get a window on a daily or even weekly basis into the womb. Thankfully, we have technology now through ultrasound and other things that we can understand what's going on. But unlike protesters that we might see on TV or some persecuted group that we can lay our eyes on, the unborn by nature is hidden. And so what we're in part doing today is sort of bringing that out, bringing that to life, shining light in the womb. But what a beautiful verse we see in Psalm 139, verse 13, to start, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, yet being unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. So we see David, the psalmist, personalizing his own experience, using pronouns like I and my, and talking about that before he even had substance, the Father, the Creator, Jesus Christ, was involved in David's life. And even all those days that are written in a book, before any one of them came to be, those days being written in a book started started in the womb. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and in verse 5. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. Notice the bones growing, and notice the the word that's used for that baby in the womb. It's not a clump of cells. It's not a fetus. The Bible calls it a child. And then if we move to such a a beautiful, inspiring uh, passage going to Luke chapter 1, we see that in verse 41, it says that it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, of course, Elizabeth and Mary being relatives, It says, at that moment, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And verse 44 goes on to say, for indeed, this is Elizabeth talking, for indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Isn't that inspiring? Does anybody remember how old John the Baptist was at this point in Elizabeth's womb? John the Baptist was six months old. Now, what I'm holding here, this is actually a 20-week-old baby in the womb. 20 weeks. It's the same size, shape, and weight of a baby. And so John the Baptist was actually a little bit bigger. But even at this point, you can see the humanity. You can see the, the realism of this baby 
in the womb. And you've probably heard of studies where if music is played to a baby who's in the womb or the mother and father's voice, that once that baby's born, there's a recognition that that baby remembers and understands what was happening in the womb. And so again, as we look, and, and the baby model element is such a powerful part of our ministry, as particularly when we get into uh, children and preteens and teens, uh, junior high and high school students, that just like you can't unsee a picture or you can't unring a bell, once you touch and feel and hold one of these babies, you can't unremember it. It's here the reality of what's happening in the womb. And so again, we have these baby models and we really encourage you to go out and, and, and touch and feel them and, and, and have a look. In fact, if you look at the screen here, you'll see this is a picture with a reference size of a quarter. Babies starting at seven weeks on the left, going all the way to 10 weeks. Now, little under half of all abortions that happen in our country happen at this stage. Many women are just realizing that they're pregnant and trying to understand what is it that they're going to do. But you can see, even at seven weeks on the far left, you see there's a head, there's arms, there's legs, there's fingers, there's toes. And then at eight weeks, the second baby to the left, that baby's heart has already beat 7.4 million times. And all of the baby's organs are already present in an eight-week-old. Did you know that brain waves start at six to seven weeks? And we also have a heartbeat that begins three weeks from conception. In fact, there's a site that you can go to. You can Google it. It's called uh, Secular Pro-Life. Even non-Christian, non-God-fearing people will quote things like a heartbeat at three weeks and brain waves at six to seven weeks to justify the need to defend life in the womb. In fact, at end of life, two of the things that they use to determine whether somebody's still alive are what? a heartbeat, and brain waves, and it happens. Would that that same uh, standard get applied uh, in the womb? I want to quickly go over some guiding principles because what God's word does on any subject, and this is no exception, God is so faithful to give us specific instruction. I mean, where would we be without God's word? How would we be able to understand so many things in life that are, uh, that are not Uh, understandable, but see, God gives us this foundation. He gives us a compass. He gives us a rock on which we can stand with any issue. And so if you could turn with me to Psalm 82, I want to pick up a couple of verses in Psalm 82, and this is in uh, starting in verse 3. It says, defend the poor and the fatherless. Now, that word fatherless can also be rendered orphan, and when we think about what an orphan is, an orphan is a child where neither mother nor father want them. And that's certainly the case when a baby is at risk of of losing its life in the womb. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and the needy and free them from the hand of the wicked. And most certainly, we can see a child in the womb needs to be defended and is very needy. Flip over with me to Proverbs Proverbs, the 24th chapter. I also want to pick up a couple of verses here. Proverbs 24, and in verse 11, says this. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? You know that phrase, surely we did not know this. We know what's going on in our country. Just like back in the 1820s and 1830s and 1840s, it was the Christians that rose up and said, slavery is wrong and we need to take steps to eradicate it. And ultimately we know that President Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s, finally slavery was eliminated. And we also know Germany in the early to mid-1940s We had Jews who were also, because they were Jews, and for no other reason, were being killed. And we remember uh, concentration camps like Auschwitz, but realized there there weren't just dozens or even hundreds of concentration camps. They now, based on research, realized that there were thousands upon thousands of concentration camps all over Eastern Europe. 
they were in people's neighborhoods, they were in people's cities, everybody knew. And so we also at this time and in this place in 2019 know the challenges that are happening in needing to protect and defend the unborn. Psalm, um, excuse me, Proverbs 31 verses 8 and 9 say, open your mouth for the speechless. In the cause of all who are appointed to die, open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. See, we need to open our mouth for the speechless. Babies in the womb can't speak. And so if we don't speak out and help protect and defend and hold them back from the slaughter, then who is going to speak out on their behalf? There's a beautiful uh, verse in Proverbs 3 and in verse 27. It says this. It says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. So you see, we have an opportunity to do good in whatever milieu or context we find ourselves. It says, don't withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. See, God gives us power in our hand to do certain things. And when we think about innocent life in the womb, there's no more valid person, there's no more qualified person than an innocent life in the womb. The most defenseless among us deserves good to be done toward them. And then in the New Testament, we see in Galatians 6, verse 10, that we should do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. And we also know that one verse in James 1.27, you don't have to turn there, but it talks about pure and undefiled religion before the Father is this, that we would visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and that we would also keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Now, just to summarize, we see on the slide here, just again, kind of rapid-fired those, those verses and collected them together. But as we see, here are some of those action statements, some of those things that you and I as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, as the hands and feet of Jesus, that we would take action. And in this context, we would take that action on behalf of the unborn, that we would defend, that we would do justice, that we would deliver that we would hold back from danger, that we would open our mouth, that we would plead the cause, that we would visit, and then we would also do good. So springing forth from God's word, these are, the, in effect, guiding principles on which we ought to think about. And in particular, as James said, faith without works is dead. It's one thing to come to a belief and have a conviction about something, but as we know, it's not about just knowing, because even the demons believe, right? It's not just about knowing God's truth, but it's about, in faith, activating that faith so that we take the steps necessary to live out, to live out that faith. Now, I want to take a moment now and talk about the numbers. How, How big... How big is this challenge? How big is this war that we find ourselves in? I want you to listen to an audio file. Right where you are, I just want you to, right there in your seats, just shut your eyes. What you're about to hear are the sounds of metal BB striking the side of a tin can. For every BB that strikes, it represents 10,000 lives lost and the wars of America's past. 10,000 lives for every BB. This is the reality of what is occurring in your country. The American Revolution. The Civil War. World War One. World War II, the Korean conflict, the conflict in Vietnam, September 11th and the war on terror, 
since 1973, the War of the Unborn Child. Since 1973, about 62 million lives have been lost to abortion. That number is so big that I can't, I can't comprehend it. And I think this audio recording does a good job of giving us some context. But even then, it's hard to grasp And to know that every, every life God witnessed, he saw it. Uh, in uh, 2017 is the last year we have uh, full data, and the number is 862,000 lives in the United States were lost to abortion. It's far and away the most, um, uh, the largest cause of death. In fact, what it means is that the most dangerous place to be in our country is a mother's womb. And this should not be so. It should not be so. <clears throat> As we think about what we can do, the fact is that blood is on all of our hands as a nation. Even the number 862,000 is, is really too big to grasp. So uh, about 133,000 of the 862 were abortions that took place in California in 2017. That's just over 15% of all abortions in the country happen in California. If we then get down to Riverside County, the number is probably somewhere between six and 8,000 abortions a year. And if we look at our, our valley here of uh, the Temecula Valley, that means that number's probably somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 um, lives. And so see, that's a number that you and I here as a life team, and that's really what we're asking you to consider engaging in is being part of this life team. Our resources are limited, but if we come together and do some of these things societally and culturally to make a difference and stand up. We can make a difference, amen? And so if we look at how do we engage going forward here on anything and this topic of, of life and, and abortion and being part of, the, part of the team of defending life, in all cases, we need to pray and seek the Lord for what he would have us do individually as Christians. Because what, what I'm called to do, and you'll meet some of our other uh, team here, uh, Jeanette Chun, who's our CEO and executive director at Birth Choice, and also uh, Dr. Jeff Connor, who um, uh, is also uh, doing some work with us to go out into the community. But as we come together as a life team, what we're ultimately trying to do is seek the Lord and find out what we individually have in terms of a role. Next, we need to engage in terms of educating ourselves on what the issues are and what the talking points are so that as we engage in other people, we know what to say and we, we know what questions to, you know, to answer. And then thirdly, we ultimately need to take those steps like we read about. It's not just about knowing, it's about doing. So then we take steps and, and activate our faith in the way of, of engaging. And so if we look at um, a couple of things that you can do tangibly, um, and then in a couple of minutes I'm going to uh, invite up um, Jeanette as well as uh, Dr. Jeff, but if we look at uh, something that you can specifically do when it comes to educating yourself, I would encourage you to, to download and read this book called Why Pro-Life by Randy Alcorn. You can, you can text the word Randy to 51555 to, to get 
the ability to download that. But this is a book that goes over some of, the, some of the background and the basics. It talks about the child. It talks about the woman. It talks about what we're dealing with culturally and politically and also ultimately spiritually. So it's a great overview to really arm you with some wonderful background information and talking points. The other thing I would encourage you to do is visit our local uh, pregnancy center uh, websites. We have one that's based on clients, uh, girls, women who may be seeking our services. And then there's another site that as a donor or supporter, you can look at for information and so on. And then um, if I could maybe have um, uh, Jeff and uh, Jeanette begin to come up here on stage. And then the last thing I would ask you to do is from an engagement standpoint is that you would initiate discussions with people in your sphere of influence. See, what God has done is given us a certain territory. He's given us a certain set of relationships, whether they be dozens, hundreds, thousands. And so the degree to which you have opportunity to open your mouth for the speechless, to defend the fatherless, and so forth, uh, you've got opportunities to help. I also would encourage you to uh, consider praying through and, and contributing financially to the cause of, of birth choice in particular, and we'll talk about some of the specific activities that we're doing as a ministry, but the way you can do that is text HOPE for 2020 to 41444. You can also volunteer your time and talents, and you all have things you can do. And then finally, I would ask that you vote for pro-life candidates. It's sometimes been criticized if you're a one-issue voter, but if there's one issue on which I believe biblically you can stand on very solid ground to vote, one issue would be life. If a politician is not going to defend the most innocent of life among us, then that politician should not get our vote. And so with that, I'm going to move the lectern so that we can have a better view of our Q&A panel So we have a few questions here. The first question is, how does a baby in the womb demonstrate the genetic uniqueness of life? Yeah, th <clears throat> thank you, Scott, and also thank you, Pastor Ted, for hosting us. Uh, this is, um, I, along with some other medical and legal professionals, we, we have been doing some forms to help educate the church on how to address this issue uh, as we engage people on this in, in our lives, and, and always with, with compassion and with grace as, as ambassadors of Christ. And one of the things we share is this idea of genetic uniqueness. And um, we know that half the DNA um, for a baby comes from mom, the other half from dad. And when those two DNAs unite into one cell, that is now uniquely a genetic code that actually has never existed before and will never exist again. In fact, the mathematical likelihood of that is one out of two to the 6.4 million chance of two people having identical DNA. And so at that moment, you have this incredibly unique life. And that number is actually mathematically impossible that two people could ever exist with that. And, and that creates just this amazing organism. And the other thing that's so unique about this is that there is this miraculous invention uh, between the mother and the baby as it develops. Um, babies uh, get their nutrients from mom. They're able to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide and all these wonderful things. Uh, but actually, their blood and immune systems don't mix. Uh, that stays separate because if they were allowed to intermingle, uh, the baby would be rejected by the mother. And the baby would own immune system would attack the mother. And that beautiful invention uh, from God is called the placenta. And that tells us that actually what is growing in the mother is separate and distinct from the mother, although inside the mother. And that is, that is something we have to realize as we talk about life and the uniqueness of life. You know, Jeff, based on that comment, we also have opportunity to interact with people clearly who aren't believers. And so when we talk about this issue of life, when you can bring science into it, there's an interesting website called Secular Pro-Life. You can Google it. And they actually talk about the fact that we should value the humanity and we should be protecting human life. And they talk about things like heartbeat at three weeks and brainwaves at six to seven weeks. So you don't have to come at this necessarily from a, a biblical or God perspective when we talk about valuing life in the womb, and what you just said is a perfect example of that. Uh, another question here, in addition to saving babies from abortion, what scope of services does birth choice offer to women? 
So we at Birth Choice are really proud to offer pregnancy testing and ultrasound, obviously, but we also are able to provide advocacy for a young woman or man that is considering um, what they should be doing with an unplanned pregnancy. Obviously, it's a pretty scary times for them. They don't have, maybe have the an outcomes uh, approach to it of what the future may hold. Everybody usually looks at the immediate needs. And what we want to do is be able to help them to walk through that so they can see that there's hope and there's courage that can be found. Um, maybe the demise of their child is probably not going to be the best thing for them as the woundedness from that lasts for a very long time. So from that, if um, we also have, um, after the advocacy portion, we also have education and training through an Earn While You Learn program, as well as a boutique that we can provide material resources. And being a resource um, center, we're um, hooked up with many different community, uh, other nonprofits that we can provide many things for them. And uh, we also have a boutique we're opening in Lake Elsinore for an education center, as well as a resale boutique, so people can come in and earn points to be able to earn the items off this floor. Like Pastor Ted mentioned at the beginning, there's a whole suite of services like you just mentioned, Jeanette. So once that courageous decision to choose life is made, there's a whole other set of work and commitment and prayer and uh, material assistance needs. That, and, and we walk them through, as you said, we walk them through that journey. Another question here, how is the culture, how is the current culture working against our pro-life efforts? You know, I think, I think when uh, we think about how our culture views life, there's a certain um, perversion that somehow we're in control of life. We decide what life is and what life isn't and what life is worth living and what life isn't. And we see that, of course, with the um, advocacy for abortion, but we see that extrapolated and seen in other areas. There is a, um, an article I often quote just a few years ago in the Journal of Medical Ethics, a peer-reviewed journal, where a couple of Italian ethicists advocate for infanticide. They use the same exact arguments to justify abortion and say, well, if we can justify abortion, we can therefore kill the newborn. And those are their words, kill the newborn. And so we see that. We see advocacy at the other end of life for euthanasia, uh, for physician-assisted suicide. So we in our pride and arrogance as human beings think that we can decide what life is worth living or what life is not. And clearly we know from what we learned today that we are image bearers of God and that we um, can share the good news with people that in fact people know in their hearts that they are um, unique and they are made by God and we have to um, share that good news and the redemptive work of Christ uh, to our world. Thank you so much for asking that question because it's really important. I think in our world today, we, um, especially women, um, have bought a lie that feminism means that we um, have the right to do whatever we want with our body and that it's an empowering thing to take total control and choose whether or not we want to uh, bear our children. And I think that there's nothing that's less empowering. I feel like the word empowering needs to be taken back, and we need to be empowering people to have courage, courage to face difficult circumstances, courage to find hope, and courage to find help so that maybe it might be a tough go for a while, but we know that truth can be found and help can be found. But I think that in, in this culture right now, there's so much uh, an emphasis on me getting to do what I want, how I want to do it. And just like Pastor Jeff said, it is just not okay for us to make those determinations for another person's life. Can you also talk a little bit about the recent um, law that was passed regarding college campuses and this topic? Yeah, this was pretty disturbing um, when it came down. Our governor has now passed a law that all public universities and state colleges will now be carrying the abortion pill so that all of their students can have it mandated, to, given to them for free. Anybody who wants to have an abortion on campus without parental involvement, nobody has to find out about it. Um, this is very disturbing because uh, most campuses within, in California within seven miles have an abortion clinic but they didn't want the girls to be inconvenienced to have to be going off of campus. They wanted it as quickly and easily as possible for them to be able to do this. I can't imagine a more devastating and a more horrible thing than for a girl not to have to walk off of campus, think about what she's doing, maybe do I really want to do this, and I don't believe that they're gonna be providing the proper education about what that pill does. Nearly half of abortions now are what they call chemical as opposed to surgical. 
And so that image of the babies from seven to 10 weeks that was shown earlier, that's the stage in which um, a chemical abortion that Jeanette was describing so that a woman at her, at her own apartment or her own home can, can basically have, have an abortion. And that's now figuring into as many as half of abortions that happen now. So uh, with that, I want to invite up Pastor Ted and uh, again, we have a table with information, we have baby models, we have all kinds of resources, uh, we've got a newsletter and just many ways that you can sort of prayerfully uh, engage in, in the ministry here, what's going on right now. And so we're just grateful for the opportunity and just really for the support. See, a lot of churches don't even want to touch this issue and a lot of pastors don't want to, but we're grateful for Pastor Ted's leadership. So thank you. Yeah. Um, if- I was horrified when I was talking to Pastor Scott about this because um, there are many churches that they have approached about doing this presentation, and the churches have said, we don't want to talk about that topic. Listen, this is, this is, a, this is, a, this is a black and white biblical issue. We will give an account to God for our stewardship. Um, and, you know, uh, Dr. Connor, something you had said, um, and I just want to confirm that I got this right, when you were talking about the uniqueness of the child, that it's a mathematical impossibility. In a previous service, you had said that that number you gave, which was something to the something power, what was it? I'm horrible with numbers. So, it, yeah, it's one to the two to the 6.4 millionth power. So six, the number so with millions 6.4 zeros. million zeros millions after zeros, it. Millions of zeros, yeah. And, and if it only had... 50 zeros after it, they would consider that to be impossible, right? Correct. So, so the, the, the point is, overwhelmingly, this child is, is uniquely an individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well, there's the separation, the placenta, and the way God has designed it um, further emphasizes, look, this is uniquely an individual. And, I, and it, it occurs to me that, that the importance of that statistic for us, that, that factual information... It goes right to the heart and just guts and eviscerates the argument that says, my body, my choice. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. It, exactly, because it's definitely a different life, a different entity. And the other thing I might add to that is, you know, identical twins start from one egg that separates. And even there, there's 300 to 400 different mutation and genetic differences between genetic or identical twins, too. So we still, even though we may think they're genetically identical, they're right. actually not completely identical. They're, they're fearfully and wonderfully Amen. made and, and created by God. Jeanette, a question for you. Um, what can we do as a church to further the mention of birth choice centers? Uh, the most major thing you guys can do for us is pray. We have an enemy who likes to kill, steal, and destroy. And in this ministry, he does not like that we like to bring forth life. Christ is life, and Christ is the only thing that's going to be able to help the young women to be able to choose life. At the same time, many of them don't know him, and so it's a battle. It's a battle on our minds, on our souls sometimes. It's very hard to do this day in and day out, Um, but at the same time, we are just so filled with excitement that we know that we have prayer supporters out there that keep us going. We obviously need volunteers. We have many different areas in which you can volunteer. We need RNs to be able to handle all of our nursing program, as well as we need uh, financial assistance. We've been growing rapidly. Uh, We didn't quite understand why God had us growing so rapidly this year. It was really a stretching year, um, and (laughs) really a stretching year. And all of a sudden, when I saw that that law was passed by Governor Newsom, I knew, I knew that everything we were doing was because we have got to be prepared to deal with this issue. We have people who are being, young people who are being destroyed by lies. They're being told untruth. They're being told these are clumps of cells. And not only that, but the sex education program that's in our schools is preparing them for promiscuity, which is then going to cause devastation and further problems for their lives. We are getting ready and gearing up for this fight, and we need your prayers, your support, and your financial help. Amen. Pastor Scott, really quickly, a final question for you. Um, The church is not immune. To, the, to, to these numbers and these decisions. You had shared with me previously, I'll challenge your memory here, that there, and I can't remember, there was, a, there was maybe a number, hopefully you can remember, but there's that, that when we consider the choices that are being made for women to, to obtain abortions, 
that, that, that many of those are Christian women that are making that decision. Yeah, about 60 to 70% of women who come into either the birth choice, the mobile ministry, and really these are true nationwide, about 60 to 70% of the women um, self-identify as Christian. And, and the even more alarming statistic in my mind is that four out of 10 women that have an abortion in America attended church sometime in the last month. So this, again, it would be great if this was a problem out there and we could sort of rally and go out there, but this is why it's so important that as a church and as the body of Christ that we look at this and see it for what it is and we drop to our knees and we have the compassion of Jesus and say, Lord, please help us. Help us to be more effective ministers in your name to minister to people that are even right here. What we don't want to do is be silent and then have a woman go outside the church to find answers and find help and find support. That support should be right here. We're not, we're not endorsing the behavior, but we're certainly recognizing there's an innocent life, and we know that Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Jeanette. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Um, we're going to close with communion, as we always do, and we're going to pray. But let me, let me close just with this. In light of everything we've talked about today, heavy subject, there's healing and there's hope in Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to celebrate in just a second with communion. But it is overwhelming, as Pastor Scott said. And I'm reminded of the story of the kid who's on the beach and he's confronted with, with tens of thousands, if not millions of starfish that have been washed up onto the beach and the tide has gone out and they are now dying on the beach, baking in the sun and he's frantically running and he's grabbing starfish and he's throwing them into the ocean as quickly as he can to save them. And some callous man comes up to him and he says, what are you kidding? You, there, there's, there's, thousands of starfish here. You're never never gonna save them all. What difference does it make? And with that, the kid looked at pointedly at the man as he threw another starfish in the ocean and he said, it made a difference to that one. And we can make a difference. Even if it's one life, we can make a difference. I, was, I just had this random thought uh, earlier before the service, and I, and I think it's from the Lord. I wish I, I, I would have thought about it in the first two services, but I say it now. You know, if everybody in our church made a decision and said, you know what, I can give 10 bucks a month to help them. Do you know that would be almost a quarter of a million dollars for their budget this year? That, that we, could, we could say, I, I want to I save babies. I, I want to do what I can um, and, and, you know, we're not asking you to do what you can't. We're asking you to do what you can. 